We're about to move into um, our preaching time, and what I want to do just real quick is define what it is that we're actually doing. Here at Timberline, Timberline Baptist Church, we do what is called expositional preaching. And what that means is we like to make our way through the Bible verse by verse, book by book. We do that so we don't uh, just skip to the certain verses that we like or avoid hard or difficult verses. Uh, but we do so so that we would come into every single verse within its context so that we would understand um, what it meant and how it was to be applied for its original hearers so then we would rightly understand and be able to apply it for ourselves today. And right now we're making our way through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Minor just simply means it's a small pro prophetic book. It's three chapters long. In the book of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk comes to God and he has some complaints. His first complaint is within Jerusalem, the remnant of believers are being persecuted by all the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And so he comes to God and says, God, do you care? Are you going to do something about this? And God says, yes, Habakkuk, I am. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to come, and they're going to destroy all of Jerusalem. They're going to wipe out the temple, and they're going to bring you into exile. Now, as you can imagine, that only raised up more questions for Habakkuk as he began to wrestle with, wait, God, you're going to use a wicked nation that doesn't even believe in you to accomplish your will? And then the last question that, uh, that Habakkuk has is in verse 17 of chapter 1, where he basically asks, God, is the wicked going to reign forever? Will Babylon always rule over us? Is there any hope? And so what we're going to see is, is some of God's answer to that today. But what we're going to see is that there is hope. And the hope is the way we live the Christian life. And we're going to see that we are called to live by Faith. And so today, we're going to look at what does it mean to live by faith. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and encourage you, stand as we read God's Word. We stand at the reading of God's Word uh, for the purpose of reminding ourselves that God's Word comes with the full authority of God. It's inspired by His Spirit, and it's for the purpose of correcting, teaching, rebuking, and equipping us. So, here we go. Habakkuk chapter 2, we're just going to read verses 2, 3, and 4. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now just through the power of your Spirit in your Word. And Lord, we just ask for wisdom. We ask for understanding. Lord, help us to know what it means to live by faith. Help us to wrestle with that. Lord, I pray that we would all have clarity with that through your Word today. That we would know what it is to live the Christian life, that we would know how to, how to honor you, how to glorify you, that we would understand the grace that you give us at every moment of our lives. Lord, remind us today of the beauty and the glory of your gospel, the fact that you have sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, that we who believe in you would be saved and forgiven and forever adopted into your family, that you would forever lavish your grace upon us. 
Father, we love you. Give us wisdom now. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So in our text, Habakkuk is given three instructions. He comes to God with the question, God, is the wicked going to reign forever? And God answers. And the first thing he says is, write it down. Write down the vision that I'm going to give to you. Now, this is important. For this shows the certainty of God's word. God is saying, what I'm going to tell you, this vision that I'm going to give you, that's going to explain how in time I will destroy the Babylonians and I will redeem Israel it's going to happen. I'm going to write it down so that you can bank on it. You can believe that this is going to happen. The second thing that Habakkuk is told to do is wait for it. You see, Israel is going to go into exile for 70 years. We know that from other books like, uh, like Isaiah and Daniel. They tell us that this exile is 70 years. It's a long time for them to be in exile. And so there's going to be time while, while Israel is under the rule of Babylon, they're going to go, is God going to, is God going to work for us? Is God going to save us? Is there hope? Is there grace coming? And Habakkuk and others are going to be able to take forward this message in written form and say, yes, it is. Here, he said it's coming. He said, wait for it. He said it might seem like it's going to be come. It, it might seem like it's going to take a while, but it's coming. We can trust in him. And I want you just to think how applicable this message is for us today also. For Israel was to go into Babylon as an exile, live under a foreign rule, waiting for the return, uh, waiting for God's grace to return and bring them out of exile back into the promised land. And think about us as Christians today. In the New Testament, we read that we, in the book of 1 Peter, that we are called exiles in this world. And we are waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for Jesus to return where he will judge the wicked and where he will gather the righteous that we would live with him forever. And so, very similarly to what Habakkuk is doing, as, as they're going to be waiting as exiles for, God to, for God's grace, so we are also waiting for the grace of God to return Jesus Christ that we would live with him forever. So how do we live in the meantime? How is Habakkuk supposed to live as he's to wait for God's grace to bring them out of exile? How are we to wait as we wait for Jesus to return where we will live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth? And that brings us to the third instruction that we have in verse 4. Now the first part of verse 4 is directed to the Babylonians and it describes their pride. We'll look at that more next week when we look at the message that God gives and the judgment that will come on the Babylonians. But we're going to today look primarily at the second part of verse 4 where it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. What does that mean? I think that's one of those Christian sayings that we throw around a lot. Oh, you're having problems? Live by faith. And we don't really know what that means. And so today, I want us to understand what it means to live by faith. That's what we're going to be addressing today. Now, three times, this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted in the New Testament. Twice by Paul, once in the book of Hebrews. So I just want to read those real quick and just see what kind of uh, quick observation we can make there. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Paul's talking about the power of the gospel to save Jews and Gentiles, and this is what he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here Paul is saying, the gospel has the power to save all people. 
All we have to do is live, but all we have to do is trust in Him by faith. Faith is what characterizes the entire Christian life. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Here he's emphasizing how we begin the Christian life. He's saying, look, you are not going to be saved by your works, by your accomplishments, by your pedigree, your genealogy. None of who you are, what you've done matters. Only by God's grace, through faith, are you saved. So we begin the Christian life by faith. Now Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 37 to 38, uh, this is what we read. For yet a little while, and, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Here, the author of Hebrews is writing to the church. They've had their property plundered. Many of them have been thrown in jail. Some of them are saying, should we be Christians? Maybe Maybe we should quit this thing. Maybe we shouldn't believe in God. This is getting hard. And so the author says, hold on. The way we live the Christian life is by faith. And so if we take Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, and we put it all together, what we see is that the entirety of the Christian life is to be characterized by faith. Living by faith is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is what every single action that you and I as believers are called to do. But what does that look like then? So if faith characterizes everything we do, what does that mean? How do we live by faith? And so what I want to do is kind of give you a definition, and then I want to go into God's Word and show how do we actually see that. And so here it is. To live by faith means we trust in the future grace of God. To live by faith means we trust in the future grace of God. And when I say the future grace of God, I mean we can trust in the promises of God. Now think about it. This is exactly what God is telling Habakkuk to do. God is telling him, Habakkuk, you're going to be going into exile for 70 years, and then, and then I will work for you. I will give grace, and I will bring you out of exile back into the promised land. And so uh, they're to wait. The way that they wait for God's promise is to trust in God's grace. They're to trust that there is grace coming. They're to trust that God is going to bring them out of exile. So, to live by faith uh, here in Habakkuk is to trust in the promise of God that he will give grace and bring them out of exile. And this is what we see all throughout Scripture. In fact, every act of obedience is done as we trust in the future grace of God. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be there for a few moments, so it's good to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. In the book, in, in Hebrews 11, the author gives us um, example after example of Old Testament saints who trusted in the future grace of God. And in Hebrews eleven six, 6, this is what we read. Without faith, is it, a, it, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice those last words. We believe that he, he exists and he rewards those who seek him. What we're given here is the promise that God gives grace. All those who believe in God um, believe that God gives grace, that he gives rewards to those who seek him. And then in all of chapter 11, 
the author gives example and example of how God gives grace to those who have faith in him. In fact, let me just give two examples. Uh, the first one, Abraham. In verses 17 and 19, we see that Abraham is, is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we go, how? How is it that Abram is going to sacrifice his son? Because in verse 18, we read, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. You see, in the Old Testament, God is creating a people in which uh, will dwell with him forever. And he begins with Abraham, and then it's going to go to Isaac, and then it's going to go to Jacob, and then to the 12 tribes of Israel. All the promises are going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Isaac can't die if God's word is going to come true. And so why is it that Abraham will offer up Isaac? It's because he believes in the future grace of God. In verse 19, we read that he believed that God would give grace and raise his son from the dead. So he was acting in faith in the hope of future grace, that even if Isaac was to die, God, by his grace, would raise him up from the dead. Or look at verses uh, 20, 24 to 26. There we read about Moses. And there it says, Moses refused to be an Egyptian, rather he chose to be mistreated with the people of Israel. Now why? Why is it that Moses would give up all his rights and royalties as an Egyptian so that he could be mistreated, so that he would be treated with contempt and shame? What we read in verse 26 is that he trusted in God's future grace. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For why? He was looking to the reward. He was looking to the grace that God would give. All of Hebrews 11, saint after saint that is mentioned, is all about how they exercised their faith, how they trusted in God's future grace. Uh, think about it like this. When you walk into a room and you flip the light switch, what you're doing is you're flipping the switch in the hope that electricity is running through the lines and the light illuminates. In a similar way, that's how our faith works. Faith is the means in which we access the very grace of God. When we trust in God, when we trust in God by our faith, we're trusting that His grace is coming to us and meeting whatever need it is that we have. Okay, so I hope you're beginning to see that everything about the Christian life is to be characterized by faith. And every act of obedience, every act of faith we do, is based upon trusting in God's future grace. So what that means is uh, when we come into God's Word and we see that as Christians we are to persevere in difficult relationships, that it is okay for us to go into uh, areas where physical persecution is a reality and we share the gospel, when we understand that we are to bless those who persecute us, or why we do not need to be anxious about food or clothing, or why we can approach death with peace and calmness, why is it that we can do those things? Because we have faith in God that He gives grace to meet us at every moment in our life. That's what it is to live by faith, is to trust in the very grace of God that He comes to supply every single one of our needs. But, but why? Why do we do that? How do we do that? I mean, uh, some atheists and other people will say, you know, Christianity is just anti-intellectual. There's no basis for what they do. Or some people will say, you know, Christianity is just a little too mystical. Or they might say, all right, so you're just saying we just trust that God's going to do good things for us. 
How is that any different than positive thinking? And so uh, what I want us to do is to understand what is the, the basis of our faith? What is the, the grounds of our faith? And so if you have your Bible, still look at Hebrews chapter 11 and go back to verse 6. Notice there it says, Without faith is it, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God, what must what? Must believe that He exists. Hear this. The, the basis of our faith is the knowledge of God. When we say that we trust in God, we're not just trusting in, in someone that we do not know. We're trusting in the God who has revealed himself through 66 books of the Bible. It would be foolish to trust in someone who we have no idea anything about. I mean, think about it. Think about if you went to the bank today and you took out all of your money, all of your life savings, you put it in a bag. And you walk up to a guy in the street and you hand him the bag and you say, hey, I want you to invest this. I want you to take it, invest it, grow this money. I'm going to come back in a week or in six months or whatever and I'm going to come and see what you have done for me. Would that be wise? No, that would be ludicrous. Your, your family would throw you in, uh, in some insane asylum. Who is this guy? Do you know who this guy is? Does he have any qualifications? Why would we give him our money? Is he able to, to even know what the stock market, um, how to work within the stock market? For all you know, this guy's going to take your money and go buy a whole bunch of pinball machines. That is not what we mean when we trust in God. We don't trust in God on the basis of nothing. We trust in God on the basis of how he has revealed himself through his word. This is why it's so important for us to know God's word, that we would know who we're trusting in, that we would know the grace of God that is coming to us. You see, when we come to God's word, we see his might and his power. We see uh, that he's full of grace and his love. You see, we see the attributes of God. And the way that we see the attributes, his character, is through his actions. But when we talk about the knowledge of God, we're not just saying, okay, I know the character of God and I know his actions. But it's also, it's also that we have an affection towards God. You see, when we come to God's word, it's so that we would know him and love him and worship him. We're not just assenting to the facts going, yes, there's a God and this is who he is. But it's that we actually believe that what the word of God says is true. That he is the one true God who has demonstrated his love for us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we, we love this God. And so as we trust in him, it's not a trust with, without emotions, but it's a trust full of love, full of devotion to God. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's people are commanded to remember God's works. They're commanded to know who God is. And it's because they know who God is that then they will obey Him in the future. In fact, what we read is that when they fail to remember who God is and what He has done for them, that's when they sin every single time. In fact, let me just read Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, uh, the, the, the parents... Uh, the children are being told to disciple your children. Teach them who God is. It says, teach them that the next generation might know them, might know who God is, the commands of God. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their 
fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation who was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So Israel's being told, teach your children about who God is so they won't be like the previous generations who rebelled against God. Now, why did the previous generations rebel against God? Why did they not trust in God's future grace? Well, in verses 10 through 11, this is what we read. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to the law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Hear this. When we forget who God is and what he has done for us, we will cease to live by faith every time. We will cease to trust in God's future grace. Remember, trusting in God's past grace is, the, is what fuels our trust in his future grace. Trusting God's past grace is what fuels our trust in his future grace. Or to say it this way, God's past grace is the foundation or the down payment of his future grace. What, what that means is that God has revealed himself and God has done great wonders in the past so that we would know that we can continue to trust in him in the future. Uh, think about it like this. When you hire a guy, you look at his resume. The resume that he gives you reveals his past performance. And you're looking at his past performance, his past actions, as the means of deciding and judging, can he continue to, to deliver what you need him to do in the future? Will he be able to work the right way? Is he trustworthy? Now, you and I know the problem with that, though. We're sinful. Just because we did something right once doesn't mean we do something right all the time. Just because uh, I was honest in the past is not necessarily a guarantee that I will be honest in the future. And we know that because humanity, because of sin, we are sinful and therefore we are not perfect and we are not righteous. But when we come into God's word, we see that God is perfect and holy and righteous, that there is no treachery, there is no deceit, there is no lies within him. He is immutable, which means he is unchanging. So he is forever faithful and perfect. So when God says that he will do something, he will always do it. Or when we look at the past of God's grace and how he has acted and demonstrated his faithfulness, we know that God will always be faithful because he is perfect, he is righteous, he is unchanging. And so let me give uh, an example of this. And this is probably uh, one of the clearest examples we have in all of God's Word, Romans 8.32. Now we use this verse quite a bit because it's just a powerful verse that, it, that uh, helps us understand what God has done for us and how we're to live. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So I want, I want to break this down. Think about it. What is, what is the promise? The promise is that God will graciously give us all things. The promise is that God will forever give us future grace. The promise is that God will never stop lavishing his grace upon us. But why? What is the basis of this promise? How do we know that we can trust in God's future grace. Notice what he does. He's now going to direct us backwards to God's past grace. He says, the promise is based upon um, God's past grace. 
Paul tells us that we can live by faith because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He's referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, at the cross, God declares his might and his power, his love and his grace and mercy. We show his strength and that he's able to overcome sin, death, and Satan. We see his wrath and his justice that Jesus goes and stands in your place and my place, that he would take the punishment that is due because of our sin and he would pay the price for it. We see God's grace and his love and how he saves us. We who are sinners who do not deserve God's grace, but he, but he saves us that we would experience his love and his mercy and his grace for all of eternity. You see, the cross is God's declaration that all who come to him, all who believe in his son Jesus Christ, will forever experience his grace. So just as in the Old Testament, they continue to look back to past actions, like, like the Exodus, where God redeemed them out of, it, out of Egypt. So now in the New Testament, we can look back at all 66 books of God's Word, but primarily we look back at the cross. At the cross is God's declaration that He has given past grace, that whoever will believe in Him, whoever will trust in Him, that they will be forgiven and that He will continue to lavish future grace on them for all of eternity. I hope you see the beauty of the gospel. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that you and I, we are sinful, and we deserve nothing from God. But in Ephesians 2, this is what we read. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Hear this. Every act of obedience we do is, is for the hope of future grace. And the reason we know that there is future grace is because the foundation that lays behind us, because of past grace, most, most uh, primarily the cross of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross God demonstrates his love so that we know when we believe in him, we are his children, adopted into his family, and that he will meet our needs and care for us through his grace in whatever comes our way. That's the promise that we have. So whatever you're going through right now, there's grace. Whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever hard relationship you're in, there is grace for you. God is telling you, live by faith. Come to me and trust in me. But hear this. The way that we're going to do that is by hungering and feasting on God's word. If, the, if, if what fuels our future grace is knowledge of God's past grace, then that means we need to know God's word. Again, in the Old Testament, we see over and over again, every time Israel was disobedient was because they forgot about God's past grace, and therefore they did not trust in his future grace. They didn't believe that God was actually going to come through. That's the danger that Habakkuk and, and them are going to face as they're in exile for 70 years. Is God going to come? Is God going to work? And so what's God telling them to do? Look at my word. Write it down, Habakkuk, so that they would see it, that they would trust it, and that they would remember all the things that I have done for them. Remember how I brought them out of Egypt, and how I have sustained them, and how I have provided for them, that they would remember my past acts of grace, so they will also trust in my future grace. Listen, there's many Christians, and they, and they don't read, they don't hunger, they don't feast on this word. 
And they'll come up with many reasons, like, well, I'm tired, well, I don't have time, well, I'm not a reader. And they come up with their gamut of excuses. You just fill in the blank. But hear this. When we minimize this word, we are minimizing the power of sin. We think we actually are strong enough in ourselves to overcome sin, to, to endure and to live uh, the way that we're supposed to, live in a pleasing way to God by our own strength. And every time we do that, we will fail. Every time. The reason we need to come into God's Word on a daily basis is because we are a forgetful people. Sin causes us to forget the past grace of God. It causes us to deny or forget or neglect the cross of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when we fail to remember the truth and the grace and the love of God that's demonstrated at the cross, we will not live obediently in the future. So one of the primary reasons we come into God's Word is that we'd be rooted in who God is, that we would know Him. That we would know what he has done for us. So we would have confidence in his grace in the future. As I was, as I was wrestling with this, um, I began to think about Adoniram Judson. Now, Ad, Adoniram Judson is a missionary who back in uh, 18, 1810, he went to India. And he went to go proclaim the gospel. I think he lived there for 38 years. And before he goes, he, he asked, uh, he's dating a, a girl named Anne, and he asked her father for her hand in marriage. And I want you just to listen to how he asked for her hand in marriage, what the basis of, of his asking is, and what his hope is in the future. So here he goes. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? Now notice why. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who has left his heavenly home and died for her and for you and for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to this? Now here it goes. For the future grace, in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. So here he is. He's saying, look, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? I don't promise riches. I don't promise comfort. I promise that we're going to go to a very uncomfortable part of the world where we are going to risk our lives for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. And your daughter and I, we may very well die and you will probably never, ever see her again. But why? Why would you say yes to this? Because of the basis of God's past grace. Notice how he responds and he goes, Can you consent to us for the sake of him who left his heavenly home, who died for her? on the basis of all who God is, and that he has sent his son Jesus Christ so you could have life, so I could have life. Will you risk everything now for the hope of future grace? And so he says, you'll probably never see her again. But when you do see her again in glory, 
you will see her around the throne of God and you will see an innumerable amount of other people around that throne praising God because of what God has done through your daughter. Will you consent to this? Because this is what I'm convinced of. If we're going to live like that, if we're going to live like, I think it's in Acts 16, where the disciples are sharing the gospel. And, and Luke says the world has been turned upside down because of what the church is doing. If you and I are going to live in a way that the world is turned upside down, if we're going to be a light in this world, if we're going to, to live in a way that honors God, it's going to be as we trust in God's future grace. Look, radical living, living like Moses, where he says, look, I'd rather uh, give up all the comforts of Egypt to, to live in shame and contempt, to look forward to the reward of God. That's all by future grace. And the reason you and I are going to know or to do that is only when we're rooted in God's past grace, knowing who God is and what he has done for us. I urge you to know your word, to read the word, and let us trust in God each and every day. When you read the word, ask this question. Who is God? How does it reveal who God is? What has he done for us? What is the past grace? And what is the promise that he gives us? Ask those three questions every time you come into God's word. I know today's Mother's Day. And so let me just, let me just say this to moms. Moms, you have an incredibly busy schedule. You have so many things that, that depend upon you. Your husbands, your kids, and, and so many other things in life. But the number one thing that's most important for you is for you to know God's word. Because the only way you're going to have patience with your spouse, the only way you're going to be able to have patience and love and grace for your kids, the only way you're going to be able to do all the things in your life with gentleness and with kindness is when you are rooted in the word of God, knowing God's past grace, convinced of God's future grace, knowing that as you live each and every day, God is supplying grace to you through faith. I urge you, know the word. Set that time aside. Feast on the word of God. And as Christians as a whole, the message is the same. Let us feast on God's word, knowing who he is, that we would live by faith, that we would trust in his future grace for whatever situation we are in, that we can count on his grace to meet us there. Let me pray. Our Father, Lord, I pray, help us to live by faith. Help us to live trusting in your future grace. May we be so convinced that because of your cross, because of what you have done for us, you give grace at every moment of, your, of our lives. And you're just simply asking us, trust in you. Trust in you. Lord, I pray that, that everyone who's listening to this, that every Christian, that we would live by faith. That we would commit to knowing you in your word, to knowing your past grace, to worshiping you through who you are and what you have done for us and trusting that you will continue to give grace for us in the future. And I pray, if anyone does not know you at this moment, they're listening to this, that they would see what you have done in the past, that they would understand that, Lord, that you have given your son Jesus to die on the cross, that we who believe in you would be forgiven, adopted, and that you would lavish your grace upon us for all of eternity. In fact, Ephesians 2, 7 says, even in heaven, you will never cease to lavish your grace upon us. Lord, I pray that they would know that today and they would trust in you. They would trust in your past grace and hopes of your future grace. Father, we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen.